Hello, everybody. It's so good to uh, speak with you today. I get to open the scripture. I love doing that, and I can't wait to share this with you today. Anytime we preach, we want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. We also want to ask ourselves a couple questions. One, what, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So I want to um, talk to you about faith and how to build faith and what faith looks like, particularly in troubled times. What does faith look like? I think we've almost ruined the word faith because faith subtly, I don't think anybody intended to do this. Faith became a what do you believe word. And if faith stays as a what do you believe word versus a who do you trust word and how do you look at your world word, well, it's, it's just at best juvenile. So what we want to do is we want to have faith in Christ in the sense that Christ is not something we believe in. Rather, Christ and the way he taught us to live is a fundamental way of seeing the whole world. And I want to read you a, a, a passage from one of Jesus's disciples who is writing to first century Christians. So he's writing to people who already know Christ. And he's talking to them about what this means for how we live in our world. This is 1 John chapter 2, and um, verse 18 to 25. It says, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for they had not been of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all the knowledge. That's a mouthful right there. If they were of us, they would have never left us. So there's, there's that. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, because you already know the truth. So these are people are followers of Christ. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made for us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So, so a couple of observations about this. First, there's a few times in this passage you see the words the last hour and the Antichrist mentioned. Now, that's an interesting thing because when you look up all the other uses in the whole Bible of the word antichrist or the last hour, this is the only time it's used. The, the, the word antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation, which is where you would expect it to appear. This, this word antichrist is not about some singular person later. This is about something going on in their world right then. And it's the only time it's mentioned in the whole Bible. This letter is written as a solution to debates around the three fundamental questions that were going on in history around Christ. Who is Jesus? How is Jesus unique? And what does he promise us? Who is Jesus? How is Jesus unique? And what does he promise us? So here were John's answers in his letter. Who is Jesus? He was the Messiah. He's, he's unlike anyone else. He's a king. He's a king anointed by God to establish a new narrative of a new rule for the earth. The idea was, is that if God was actually in flesh, it wouldn't look like Caesar oppressing and raping and destroying most of the world. It would actually look like Christ, 
who come to lift the lowly to the level of the elite. It, it would be the end of social classes. It would be the end of misogyny. It would be the end of male, female, Jew, Greek, slavery. It would be the end of all that. So, so who is Jesus? He's the one that came to introduce a new narrative to the world about what the world would look like if it was under the rule of a God who came in flesh. And that was called the kingdom of God. And he is the ultimate picture of what that God is. Not a God who tortures or demands to be served, but a God who empties himself and serves others. Um, no, uh, number two, how, how is Jesus unique? Well, he's divine. Somehow the Father and the Son are connected and can't be separated. Now, this was the propaganda around Caesar as well, that, that Caesar was fully man, fully God. But, but the, the, the point the gospel writers and John is making is, if God was a man, it wouldn't look like that. Like, surely God can do better than a guy enriching the top 1% at the expense of the 99%. Surely, surely it would be better than that. Uh, uh, what does Jesus promise us? Eternal life. John loves this phrase and uses it extensively, eternal life. So let's look at that phrase. So the phrase eternal life is made up of a compound. It's two Greek words, psyche and zoe. Psyche is the Greek word to describe our consciousness that is present. Like it's where we get the word psychology from. It's what we're aware of right now. It's um, what gains our attention. Psyche. Zoe is described as something with no beginning and no end and is always in the present tense. So when first century Jews used the word eternal life, they weren't talking about going to heaven when you die. Although we embrace that. We embrace resurrection. We embrace the olam haba. We embrace that. But when, when John's using the word eternal life, he's not talking about where you go when you die. He's talking about tapping into the life source that was present at creation is ongoing holding all things together now and will continue to hold all things together. And in the present tense, our consciousness reaches into that. Let, let me be as simple as I can. In a first century Jewish world, eternal life was having a moment where you were exceptionally conscious of God's best way and his activity in our life right now. It's any time we can cancel the white noise of everything else and be focused and attentive to what God is up to. It's touching the best kind of life here now today. And John uses the word knowing. John uses the word know and the word believe often. In the Gospel of John, he uses the word believe the most. In his letters, he uses the word know. And possibly because the Gospel of John is written to people who have no idea about Jesus. The letters are written to establish communities of Jesus' followers. So to John, there was a journey from belief, like I believe that, to a knowing. Maybe we can say it this way from a what we believe to a how we believe what we believe. Or to move Jesus from a bullet point on a pamphlet describing what we believe to moving Jesus to a knowing of how we fundamentally see our whole world. Those two things. What if John is giving us a progression of a posture of believing to an experience of knowing? Let me say it a couple different ways. Belief resides in the head, but knowing resides in the center of our being. For us, that would be our heart. For the first century people, that would be their bowel, their shplakna, the, the, the life source. So in one sense, maybe John's saying, wait a minute, it's okay to start with belief, but at some point, belief has to journey to a position of knowing, an experiential knowing of a fundamental way of seeing the world. See, Jesus was bringing good news and eternal life to a world of pain and bad news. That, that's a good narrative. I'm going to bring good news and a way to touch eternal life in a world of pain and bad news. I'm changing the narrative. 
That guy over there called Caesar who says he's God in flesh, he's not bringing life to most people. Top 1% being enriched. Everybody else impoverished, raped, pillaged, oppressed, starving. No, 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 no. If, if God was actually in flesh, it wouldn't like that. No, no, I'm, I'm gonna bring a new narrative and we're gonna call that narrative the kingdom of God. A phrase that wasn't used before Jesus. Uh, it wasn't used in any Old Testament passage, any rabbinical literature. Jesus is saying a new thing. I've come for this purpose to establish the kingdom of God. What, what does that mean in the most common language I can say? That Jesus came to establish the rule of God by introducing a new narrative of how the world can work if God was in flesh and ruling it and invite people to change the way they think to align themselves with it. That's called repentance. Jesus is bringing good news. In, 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 in this passage, Antichrist seems to be anyone who believes the bad news instead of knowing the good news. Antichrist is anyone who says, nope, the old way of seeing the world is better than the way Jesus just brought to the world. That that is the antichrist way of living. It seems in this passage that there is an invitation to move from belief to knowing, to move from what to who, to move from bullet points to a fundamental way of seeing the world. And the invitation to build our faith in a time like this is times like this expose where our belief is just bullet points. Times like this expose when our faith can be relegated to bullet points on a pamphlet versus faith being a fundamental way of seeing the world in who do we trust and how do we surrender our control to God. It's that. It's, it brings about what's really important. Are, are, we, are we after stuff? It, 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 also, it also teaches us that what the scripture says about stuff being temporary is quite literally true. Like how many times in scripture do you see, hey, don't put your faith in temporary. Don't put your faith in that. That's it's not bad. It's just temporary. And, and when you put faith in temporary things, it's pretty fragile. Things can go away like this. Like in our world right now, a germ brought the entire global economy to its knees. That, that, that's fragile. Like the best laid plans, like that, that's, that's fragile. If, if you put your faith in something, well, that's fragile. That's, that's trusting a temporary thing. And the invitation in this passage is to trust a better story. To move our faith and trust from a certain narrative about how the world works to a better narrative. And that would be called good news. It's also called eternal life. It's a way to reach into what God has been up to since before the foundation of the world. And we get to touch it a bit now. We experience it on a daily, at least weekly basis probably, in prayer. Like prayer isn't supposed to inaugurate new realities as much as prayer is to align us with what God's already been up to since before the foundation of the world. Prayer cancels the white noise of our whole world around us and allows us to be conscious of what God's been up to all along. Same thing with worship. Great worship does not inaugurate the presence of God. Like, hey, sing a song so God will show up. What? No, that's ancient primitive paganism. No, no. Great worship does not inaugurate the presence of God. Great worship cancels the white noise of people's lives long enough to allow them to be conscious of what God's been up to all along. And in that moment, they get to touch it, but it was there all along. We experience eternal life in moments where we do something for someone who could do nothing in return for us. It's in that moment where we truly start 
living. It's in that moment where Jesus said, when you learn to love your enemy, that's when life really starts. In an earlier passage, he says, God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. So when you learn to live like that, you're actually being holy as God is holy. In other words, to Jesus, life actually begins when we treat people as they are worth and not as they deserve. And here's the issue in a moment like this. In a moment like this, our faith gets exposed for whether it just belongs as bullet points on a pamphlet, or are we actually in the process of knowing? Do we actually know on the inside? Is it fundamentally shifting the way we see our whole world? Are we holding back from the poor and the afflicted? Are we putting the vulnerable at more at risk? Is Jesus simply belief system? And, and John is inviting us to a progression that is normal. And that normal progression is, yeah, believing one thing, I'm inviting you to know. And to know means you're gonna touch eternal life. Not someday, but here, now, today. So a couple of questions that I want us to wrestle with because what happened and what's happening in me now because of what happened are two different things. So, so let's stop and let's ask a few questions about this. One, can we stop and remember a moment where we shifted from belief to knowing? Like, like I believe that Jesus could heal people, but that's fundamentally different than the first time I saw someone get healed. I believe Christ could deliver people. That, that's fundamentally different than the first time I saw someone be delivered. I, I believe that the best way to live is to forgive my enemies and bless them and not escalate the conflict. I believe that. But that's fundamentally different than the first time I, by faith, engaged in that and got to know and taste a little bit about what that life looks like. What does it look like to not just believe it? What John is saying to people who already believe in Jesus is do not relegate Jesus to a bullet point on a pamphlet, but rather a fundamental way of seeing the world. And how do we know that? We know that through knowing instead of believing and through eternal life. Let, let's say it this way. Are we deficient in belief? Are we deficient in belief? And can we ask the Holy Spirit to help our unbelief? In, in the biblical narrative, that's a common thing. Hey, help my unbelief. In other words, this side of the ledger, I'm a little bit deficient. I'm not sure I actually have my head wrapped around that. I don't know if I believe that. And that's a legitimate part of the spiritual journey. But, but maybe for some of us, we don't have a belief problem. We have a knowing problem. And, and can we ask the Holy Spirit for the opportunities to help us know, not just believe, to have the opportunity to minister to the poor and feel and know what that kind of life looks like, to forgive our enemies, to not escalate the violence. This, if Jesus is relegated to a bullet point on a pamphlet, what is that like? We believe this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What about if, it's, if Jesus is how we know stuff? Is, is how we see our whole world. This would change everything. This would change how we shop. This would change how we hoard or don't hoard. This would change our, our basic attitude around, hey, I'm willing to suffer a bit so that the most vulnerable don't suffer a whole lot. It, it would change that. It, it, would change, it, it would change how we treat someone who we perceive wronged us. It, it would change the way we see, wait a minute, hang on, hang on. These people are the most vulnerable. How can we do something for them that they can do nothing in return for us? Maybe we actually do have a belief problem. And if that's the case, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with that. But we might not have a belief problem. We might have a knowing problem. And a knowing problem, we need to ask the Holy Spirit for the opportunity to engage in the kind of life Jesus taught us to live so that we can know it. Let's ask it a fourth way. Do we wrap our consciousness around the good news of eternal life 
or the bad news. In the whole of Scripture, this is the only time the word antichrist is used. That's it. It's not used in Revelation. It's not used anywhere else. Just in 1 John. And the context is, is that there's a narrative. That Christ brought a new narrative to the world called good news. Christ's message was, I've come for the primary reason of establishing the kingdom of God. What is that? That's a new narrative. If God was in flesh, it surely wouldn't look like Caesar. Surely can't look like that. That, that if Caesar is what God looks like in flesh, then he's oppressing 99% of the world and enriching 1%. No way that happens. No way if God, who created the whole thing and is holding the whole thing together, if God became flesh, he's going to enrich himself and rape and pillage and oppress people. It's not that. That Jesus came with a new narrative, which requires repentance, a new way of thinking about the world. That, that in Christ, there's not Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That, that Christ was the end of the class systems. It was the end of racism. It was the end of misogyny. It was the end of the differentiation between those things. And that would be good news. And, and we have a choice. We can wrap our consciousness around the good news that brings eternal life or the bad news that keeps the world in a subpar narrative. So Jesus offers this narrative to the world. His invitation is to repent, to change the way we think about it. And when we do, there's a word for that, salvation, true life. This is where living starts. Are we centered on Christ or antichrist? So my brothers and sisters, may your knowledge of Christ not be relegated to belief, like a what do you believe, but rather a who do you trust and, 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 and a fundamental way of seeing the world. May we grab eternal life, not someday, but here, now, today, by being aware of what God has been up to since before the foundation of the world. And today, we get to touch it. May that get bigger for you today. Grace and peace, everybody.